Hi, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Who are we? Angel Nears is a community for startup builders based in Silicon Valley, where we're talking about building and scaling businesses with industry experts. I'm your host, Oleg Kuchikov, and today I'm talking about how to scale teams and revenue with Jeff Gray. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oleg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, Jeff, you've held senior positions at several startups during high growth periods. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about those companies and what kind of work you're typically doing? Um, sure. Uh, I've I've been a VP of business operations at two different startups, uh, at CoreOS, which was an infrastructure company, a Kubernetes company for a couple of years, uh, and Domino Data Lab, a, a data science platform. At both, at VP Business Ops, was responsible for a number of functions, finance, HR, customer success, uh, international uh, and in the early days, lots of other things too, even a bit of engineering um, uh, as we built up. Can you tell me a little bit about the companies, like what kind of products you were selling? Sure. So CoreOS was an open source company. Uh, so we had a, we started building an operating system uh, that did a couple of things. It ran a Docker container and it could update itself. Uh, and some of those ideas and principles were fundamental in the cloud native and container movement. Um, and when Google released Kubernetes, uh, we switched a little bit to become a Kubernetes company. Uh, and the product today is the foundation of Red Hat's Kubernetes um, product after the acquisition a couple of years ago. Uh, and Domino Data Lab, we made a, a platform for data scientists. Uh, we actually sold to, we sold high up in the organization to companies, big companies that had research going on maybe in the marketing department and the R&D department and wanted to centralize research. Um, before that, I was a consultant for a, for a really long time, um, ran a PNL at a, at a systems integrator. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you do a little bit of everything and anything. Uh, I was looking over your resume and like your experience lists, like marketing, sales, uh, operations, even like you said, engineering. Uh, so I guess, what is it you do exactly? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, that was a great question. I asked myself that, uh, I asked myself that, um, some, some days as well. Um, I think, uh, well, so what I do today is, is I'm a, I'm a consultant to a bunch of startups. Usually I engage, uh, right around series a or just after there's product market fit, when things are starting to get complex, uh, when mm -hmm. it becomes too much for the founder to keep in his or her head, uh, sort mm -hmm. of what everybody's doing. And then at some stage, um, who, who everybody is, um, I started calling this sort of day two biz ops or day two business operations. Um, in the DevOps world, you talk about day one operations, meaning we have to install the software, we have to get it running, we have to get our hello world um, application up and running. Day two is about monitoring and troubleshooting and upgrading and managing that whole life cycle. So I've sort of tortured the uh, the metaphor and moved it over into, into the business operations space. I'm talking about that stage of the company where a plan starts to matter, where you're thinking of which leaders to hire when. Um, you have a portfolio of bets you're trying to figure out uh, which to place and when. Um, and I think and part of this sort of being a jack of all trades, like you say, is um, I work with companies and help them figure out how to navigate some of that complexity and actually um, change the way they operate to match that complexity and hopefully keep going just as fast as, as they ever were. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to talk about the, the the day two experience, but I just I just would like to bring in a little bit of my own experience uh, from school, and that is the experience of those like first couple assignments, or really the first assignment you get in any kind of programming involved class, and then everything else. 
So typically when you start a class, you have a new software you're working on, you might have a new developing environment you have to install. And this was actually always like the most challenging assignment for me was like, set it up uh, so that it works, you know, set up your IDE so that you can hit run and yeah, hello world pops onto the screen. And that was a much different experience than the day two kind of stuff, which is more, you know, um, building something out, like finding solutions to problems. Uh, the setup and the execution stages are, are very separate. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to skip all that setup stuff. We're going to assume that uh, people listening or people interested um, have, uh, they, they have the ball rolling, so to speak, and uh, they're, they're more interested in scaling their business than you know, going from zero to one. The metaphor maybe doesn't work perfectly. These things aren't discrete, right? Even even in quote unquote day two, there is a ton of discovery. There is a ton of change. I think in general, you're saying, yeah, we're not going to change our market and we're not going to wholly change our product. Or those are very big changes that are sort of hard to increment and hard to MVP. Um, but I think there is, I think there is a lot of discovery that has to happen, maybe a little bit at a lower level, or discovery that has to keep happening um, as we figure out. Well, we got to this plateau. Great, now I have to discover and invent how to get to the next one. So they're maybe not quite so discrete and, and binary. Um, but yeah, most mostly I've engaged once we have a product, we generally know who we're selling it to and we've had a little bit of success. That's where that's where I have more experience. All right. Well, I want to talk about that little bit of success that you mentioned. Uh, you were able to uh, increase revenue from 750000 to $10 million at CoreOS in just a little more than two years. Uh, what were the key activities and tasks of building that team as, as you scaled in size and revenue? So um, at CoreOS, um, I think the, I, I think I described the problem statement this way. So when I joined the company, it's an open source company. The company had an amazing open source reputation. So there were developers around the world that used our tools to run their applications. And more than that, really believed that the founding team had created something that really spoke to them about the way people should run applications. And so, so sort of the, um, the, the mission at the highest level was how to uh, use that goodwill uh, and that product success to build a project success, I should say, to build products and a business. Um, and to do that without um, compromising our ideals and in fact, turning off those, those engineers that, that were, were our big advocates. Um, so, uh, you know, how we did it is, 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 uh, is, a, is a big subject, but I think that that was, that was the mission there. So I think um, uh, when I joined, we were just embarking on that, on that journey. We had just launched our first Kubernetes product. Uh, and the mission there was to ride the wave of the growth of Kubernetes, which is now more or less the standard if you're building your own platform for, for, for infrastructure and you're not just using one of the cloud providers. Uh, how to collaborate with Google and other, and other partners in the ecosystem, um, how to understand what would differentiate us uh, uh, on top of that. Uh, and then in the back office, some of the other stuff that I dealt with, how are we going to grow intelligently and, and grow efficiently? Can we go back to like when you were starting? Um, how were you able to ride that wave of, of goodwill and also scale the team? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I can't take any credit for the, for the sort of open source goodwill. Um, but I think it was all about the day one experience, actually, to, to, to go back to that metaphor is the, the tool. They made an operating system that was so uh, it did something that had been so hard and made it powerfully simple, which was to upgrade your operating system. And in fact, upgrade your applications. It happened seamlessly in the background for you, um, as opposed to I have to take my service down 
or I have to worry about I have to worry about downtime. And so they they sort of nailed this problem beautifully and elegantly. Uh, and in and in the way they solved that problem, those really really complex systems engineering uh, behind it was was a bunch of other sort of product principles on which they could they could build other sort of higher level products. And so it was about taking something really simple and uh, taking something really complicated and making it seem simple and elegant. Um, uh, and then also a sort of great, great mind for marketing and PR from the, from the founders. Uh, I can't take any credit for that stuff though, but it was a great, once we tried to scale it, it was a great asset to have in the bank. Right, right. I, uh, I hear you. It's hard to take credit when uh, so much of the work is done by a team. Um, I, uh, I, I guess I want to ask, um, what were like the main challenges you faced as you were scaling up? And, and also I would like to say like, uh, yeah, to summarize your point, like a, 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 a great day one helps, helps that day two, you know, start off on the right foot. Yeah. So I'll just ask again, like, as you're going, as you're taking that concept and, and you're growing, like, what are the, what are the challenges you, that you faced, um, sort of being in a leadership role? Uh, yeah. What were the roadblocks that you had to knock out of the way? Yeah. Well, there's a bunch of lenses to look at this. Um, maybe we can, we can start on team, team and hiring and sort of, and sort of go out from there just to kind of, uh, just to kind of focus in. So, um, I think when you're grow when you're taking the you know you're no longer just talking about the sort of the founding team you're starting to grow next level of of leaders. I think every startup founder knows the knows the sort of cliches you need to hire people that are much better than you at each individual thing to to sort of scale up as you go. Um, I think I think how to do that and do that well and control spend is is really complex. So um, uh, I you know I think sort of one of the challenges there is. Uh, do you hire for the job that, that that you have today, the needs that you have today, and the scope that you have today, uh, or do you hire for uh, where you think you can get to? Um, and I think this, like so many things in a startup, this is something where you can mess up on either side. You can break, you can ruin your company airing airing either way. Um, and I think you have to be cognizant of what your biases are and and whisk which risks you you feel like taking. Um, I think I think in that one, my bias is almost always. Hire like I will err on hire for the job today. Uh, hire someone that can do the work that I want to build out from the product, um, especially in a in a highly technical uh, space. Um, and that gives me the risk of well, I have to either help or the person has to be able to grow into where we're going, or we have to top them. Um, I still want to take that risk over the other one where we hire a big co exec and we're not you know they they can't they can't do what is needed today or can't do it without more infrastructure than we can or than we want to build at any given time. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So now we're talking about hiring uh, and, and that was, you know, you led me right into my next topic. Um, I do think hiring is like the first important thing that we should talk about here because uh, sure. it is so challenging. So, uh, you know, you kind of already answered my question, uh, but who, I, I think you answered my question, but I want to ask like, who do you f hire first and how I think you're going to say like, uh, you know, assess the needs of the company at that moment um and then it all depends of course but sure yeah but yeah so so yeah who do you hire first um as, as a founder ceo when you're trying to scale as with all these things it depends on a number of things um uh but i think about it in each sort of function or domain to build build out from the product so in marketing 
you need product marketing or developer relations DevRel first before you hire marketing execs or dimension, or they're not going to have any content to build stuff around. Um, in sales, uh, you need salespeople who are technical enough to, again, I come from pretty technical products, uh, who are technical enough to demo it on their own. When you start building CS, you need customer success engineers that know the product and can fix stuff. Um, before you have CSMs, who their job is customer success managers, their job is to manage a process and manage a relationship and manage a, a renewal. They need engineers and engineers to rely on. So, um, you know, I think I think that's the way. In general, my philosophy is built out from the product. I think also, um, uh, yeah, I, I think um, the startups that I've been at um, and have consulted with, where the mission is is really is really core. It's and, and people live it and people believe it, it's a huge advantage. So at CoreOS, it was about, the mission was about this way to build enterprise or to build infrastructure. At ThoughtWorks, the consulting company I was at, there was a, a social justice mission uh, that we lived and believed in. And even if both of those turned people off, being super passionate about a thing um, really, really differentiates you as you're, as you're trying to attract these folks to, to build out from the product. Yeah. Yeah. So as always, you kind of have to read the situation and, uh, that's always going to be your best advice. Uh, but I want to talk about um, like hiring VPs. So at some point in the company lifecycle, you know, those people that built the company, the founders and the people they surrounded themselves with, uh, you need to, you know, those builders need to get surrounded with, uh, you know, people that managing manage the purchasing funnel and also own the sales cycle. Yeah. Uh, so, so when is the right time to hire like a VP of sales and a VP of marketing? I think the rule of thumb in enterprise, the, the, the cliche that someone taught me that I actually believe in is once you have two two reps at quota, it's time to bring in a VP of sales. I think that... What does that mean for me? Just because I don't really know. Uh, so if you have two salespeople that are selling as much as you think they should sell, ah, then okay. It, it's okay to hire a VP of sales. So VP of sales, their job, his or her job is to build the organization, set the patterns, figure out how and when we scale, how and when we sort of seize other opportunities with other channels. Um, uh, in general, they you want them focused on that and not on doing the initial deals. Um, in general, they want to see that's there before before they join. Um, so the, you know, your sort of first VP of sales, the rule of thumb is after a couple of your salespeople are doing doing sort of what, what you think. Um, I think that... Uh, Again, I think there's a real sort of CEO and management and board decision to be made on when, when and who and how big. Um, a couple of times, unfortunately, I've been involved in uh, hires that weren't the right ones for a VP of sales. Um, and it set a company back six to 12 months. Um, the, the time it took to hire, the time it took to onboard, the time it took to learn on either way that we made a mistake and then do all that again, it is, long, it is longer than you think. You're just uh, making a good point that, you know, as you make those mistakes, not only are you paying for it um, in the sense that, you know, you're not filling the position you need, but it's like a timing thing where you need time to realize you made a mistake, then you need time to adjust the mistake, you need time to start all over. So uh, it's a it's a big deal for sure. You probably also waited on some decisions um, for this leader to come. So let's, let's talk about our hypothetical company that has two sales reps performing at expectations. Right. You probably waited for your VP to hire the third because um, you're like, oh, he or she is going to be better at hiring that than me, so I'm going to wait. 
or maybe there was a question on um, you know, how to engage with a potential channel partner. You probably waited to really engage and figure that out until the VP of sales thinking, great, this expert will be here and I can delegate to him or her. Um, mm-hmm. And so not only did you, did you lose this time, there's decisions you deferred that now, now are urgent and are, are going to come due. So um, it's, a, it's one of the most high stakes make, moves, moves you'll make. Right, right. And those mistakes, they just sound like they compound. Um, I'd just like to point out that to me, like two sales reps performing at quota almost, it, it seems pretty early, um, but I don't have experience. Uh, that's why that's why nobody pays me the big bucks yeah. to make these decisions. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that um, I think that once you're above that, um, how, how to onboard these folks, how to split up territory, how to price, how to raise your average sales price. Um, what leads, you know, how, how to make the process more efficient and faster. Those things become top level problems. Um, right. And that is a management job that takes a really capable manager. It's a really important high leverage thing. Yeah. I mean, you're essentially setting yourself up for the future. Uh, once you have yeah. those two sales guys performing a quota, like, you know, every person you bring in is going to have a huge effect, a huge butterfly effect on like where the organization is going to go. So maybe there is not, maybe too early is like not even a thing. Uh, uh, well, no, I think, I think too early is a thing. And again, I think it depends on, I think it depends on the market, right? If you have a, if you have a transactional thing where, you know, most of your work is, most of your deals are self-serve um, and people are signing up for 20 bucks a month. Um, that might look uh, like a different, like a different team than if you're doing five hundred thousand dollar deals to big insurance companies. So it's gonna, it's gonna really depend on on the characteristics. It's always gonna depend. Uh, okay, so let's move from sales to marketing. What key, what key criteria are you looking for uh, when you're hiring a VP of marketing? Yeah, I, I worked with uh, a marketing leader at at, at Domino's named Souther Jones, um, and when the first day I met him, he said, "My job is to do deals." Um, and I really love that attitude. Of course, Southern himself didn't directly do deals, um, uh, but his job was, his success was if the sales team did, right? And so I, I think that's a great um, attitude and mindset. I also look for someone that is both an operator. So they know all these, they know how to fluently use all these acronyms and the models behind them, like MQL and SQL, and they know how to do cohort analyses and all that. But also like marketing is inherently a creative act in some ways. And so the leader has to, be fluent with those operations, but also uh, be able to get writers, designers, engineers uh, to follow them and want to work for them. And so I look, I look for, I look for both of those things. So your metrics don't matter if you don't have the, if you don't have the substance and the content um, uh, to fuel them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, this isn't the podcast about hiring, but I just want to ask uh, anyway because y- you sound like someone with experience. Are there any kind of like any tips or tricks you have when you're when you're hiring someone and you're trying to assess them in those more creative uh, kind of domains? I think for some of that stuff, the, like again, for to take the example of a marketer and will a will a a, a creative designer or a, a creative director or a content person follow them? I mean, a part it's a uh, you can handle that some of that through reference and back back channels. Like mm-hmm. if those people, if the VP marketing isn't a, for example, designer, but you can find designers who are highly loyal to that person. I think that's a great, I think that's a great sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, um, I think you can also ask, I think here's where I do a lot of um, uh, sort of experiential interview questions on uh, trying to find times when they have developed and retained um, these folks and not, not just have theory about it, but actually have, messed it up and have and have have learned and come through the other side 
Yeah, great advice. Um, yeah, experience is always important. And yeah, it's kind of funny that we're here on a podcast talking about the importance of, uh, you know, communication and uh, references and that kind of thing. That's right. it's, all, it's, all, it's all people problems at some point. Yep. Yeah, at the end of the day, uh, even when you're selling technology. Okay, so uh, what are so next? Yeah, what are your thoughts about hiring from bigger companies uh, when you're sort of a smaller early stage company? I did this move. I mean, it didn't come from the world's largest company, but the consulting company I left was was three thousand people, and I went to a startup of of thirty. And I got advice um, from an investor when I did it, and he, and he said it wasn't really advice. It was a it was a fortune. It was fortune telling. He said you're gonna you're gonna make two different kinds of mistakes, and you're gonna make them both. He said sometimes you're gonna look at the startup and say, "Wow, everything's a hot mess," but it's okay because it's a startup, and I'm gonna let it go. And you're gonna he said sometimes you're gonna err too far that way, and sometimes you're gonna look and say. Well, everything's a hot mess. I have to go fix it right now. And he said, "Sometimes you're going to make you're going to make that mistake too." Um, and indeed, indeed, I have and and did did make both mistakes. And that that advice has stuck with me uh, for for a long time now. I think um, the thing where big company people fall down is they expect there to be infrastructure. So if it's in a sales role, they expect there's going to be a department that's going to make their decks and do their competitive analyses. And there is no infrastructure like that is half an hour a week of your job or someone else's job. Um, and so um, you have to get yourself really, really confident that um, that they can do stuff without the infrastructure. Um, and so I'm probably a little more, I'm probably a little more bullish on, uh, uh, on, on hiring big company people than many. Um, but uh, I want to hear them say back to me that they, I want them to demonstrate they truly understand how little infrastructure they're going to have and what, what that's going to mean for what, for what they need to do. Because if you can get that, the experience of having seen where we're trying to get to um, is super valuable. Yeah, such a tight line you got to walk there. Uh, anyone who anyone who's worked in a startup knows that, yeah, you, you are the infrastructure. There is no safety net. If there's something that needs to get done, you pretty much got to do it. Um, it's, also, it's, also a t- it's also a team sport, right? I wouldn't hire my entire team from Facebook um, to a 30-person startup. But uh, if I have an entire team of, of super scrappy startup people, getting one or two big co people in the mix is a is a really is a good risk to take. It's it's a team sport, um, it's, and we don't all have to be individually perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, okay, let's move on to sales and SDR teams. I'm interested. Uh, I guess the first question here is: is can you run a? And this is coronavirus relevant, of course. Indeed. Uh, can you run an SDR team remotely? Well, I think, yeah, the last couple of months of lockdown have shown that, yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have said on a spectrum of functions that can be fully distributed to ones that have to be co-located, I would put this more on the co-located end. Um, in general, you have teams of, in general, the people who, who, who started SDR roles, not, not always, they are new to tech and new to sales. Um, and they're doing this to break in. Um, and so sort of by definition, they've not done this before and they don't have the patterns. Sometimes that is, they don't have the patterns for like working in a company or working in a tech company and they certainly don't have the sales patterns. So, um, you know, this is where a lot of the team camaraderie and team expectations, um, that you get through co-located can really help. So I'm never, never say never. And of course, all these teams are distributed right now. Um, but it's, it's probably one of the last ones I would want to distribute if I had sort of full, full control of the universe. Yeah, yeah. Um, just curious, have you run an SDR team before? Uh, not, not directly. I inherited one at uh, at one of my startups, and I told the manager, 
yeah, I, I've never done this before and we're going to figure it out together. And luckily she knew, she knew a lot about being an SDR and I knew a lot about being a manager. Uh, and we, we, we did good stuff, but no, not directly. Yeah. Yeah. Not directly. But of course you were sort of managing the person who was managing the team. Yeah. When you get at, at some point, you have to learn how to manage stuff you've never done. And, um, yeah, it's, it's better if you've done it, but, um, you can sometimes get by, uh, even if, if not thing you've done. Well, I might have to call you offline to get some advice on that because uh, okay. I might be running into issues myself. Um, okay, so we're still talking about SDRs. Uh, what's a good way to measure your team productivity? So I think I think it has to be kind of subservient to the entire sales team or, or go-to-market team's productivity. It has to fit within that model. Um, so for that, you want to use a metric um, like payback period. Um, magic, magic number is similar. Um, payback period says... How many months do we have to keep a customer or keep a deal to pay back our sales and marketing costs? Um, uh, saw a report by Meritech that said something like 18 or 20 months was the median for public tech companies. So you have a, you have a, you have a figure like that, an overall payback period that we're trying to hit. And that includes your SDRs and your marketing team and your sales reps and your sales management and your whatever, Salesforce license, all those costs, um, all those costs baked, baked in. Mm-hmm. Um, so with respect to the SDR, then you have to figure out with your model uh, a bunch of the sort of ratios within that. Um, mm-hmm. Most people plan, and I like to plan off the AE, the account executive, the sales rep, as as a unit. And so you're looking at what are your what are your ratios there of management? It's going to be something like seven to one of SEs. It's going to be something like one or two or three SEs to each to each rep, and similar with SDRs. So what's the um, so how many SDRs do we need to keep to keep these AEs fed with leads? Um, and the, uh, you know, so when I'm building these plans for companies, start with a baseline of something like three SDRs. Or excuse me, three AEs for one SDR. So each ADR is each SDR is supporting three. Um, if you find that's not working, then you have some things you can try to tweak uh, tweak to stay within that payback period. You can tweak um, the way you train and onboard your SDRs. You can tweak um, uh, the content and the messages you do. Um, you can also say, well, I need a different ratio because of my business. Um, and I'm going to make that okay because we're going to, we're so narrowed on the use case, we're going to have a higher win percentage um, or, or our, our sales cycle is so short, our ACV is so high or so low. And so um, you need to, um, it's good to have benchmarks in, in the industry of this 18 month payback period or this three to one ratio of, of AEs to SDRs, and then there are a million other variables you, you have to play with to optimize for, for your business. Um, yeah. Sounds like a very complicated type of calculus for, uh, uh, for sales managers. It is, the arithmetic itself is really easy. I think the, I think the, I think the important, I think that's the, the dirty secret of, of SaaS uh, biz ops and SaaS finance is the math is really, really easy. And really, and really common sense. But I, I think the hard part in the discipline is, uh, well, these are the 10 assumptions we made about our model. Uh, and then in a week or a month or three months, checking and saying, oh, well, these seven were totally wrong. Great. How are we going to, is it okay? And how are we going to adjust? The discipline uh, to do that and the creativity to figure out those adjustments, that's, that's the hard part. The keeping score is re- relatively easy. Right, right, right. It's the model tweaking, the model building um, that that's really complicated. So the task for a VP of sales is actually really tough, right? You have to um, essentially, you know, make a model that is accurate enough and uh, 
it sounds like a really complicated problem. So my next question for you is how fast should that VP be delivering on results for, uh, for his team? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of step functions. So almost certainly you should see in the first quarter, you should see a big lift because there were a bunch of deals, the founder or the me or someone with the sales reps was trying to work. And you bring in a VP sales that's done this for 15 or 20 years. And he or she is going to give you a big lift on those deals you've had in, you've had in flight, the sort of latent people who wanted to spend money with you, but you weren't good enough at selling to, to, to collect that money. Probably you're going to see a lift in that first quarter. Yeah, push them then, over the top for that. that. That's right. And then that's going to plateau you. And then there's going to be another lift in a couple quarters when the salespeople they brought on, they were able to bring on that you couldn't ramp. And then there's another one where in another few quarters after that, another step change where um, you get they lead you into a new geo. And so there's a series of step changes uh, sort of every couple of quarters um, that, that that I would expect. That first one's going to come pretty fast, though, because they, sh- they should be able to they should be better at selling than you. Uh, and should be able should help you get some of that stuff over the line that you never quite could. Right, right. You're hiring them for that reason, right? Uh, yeah. It's funny. It sounds it sounds a lot like uh, like lifting weights, and uh, you know, as you when you, when you start lifting weights, you uh, you experience those like uh, newbie gains. Uh, it's like you've never yep. weight lifted before, so you know you start doing this, and boom, it's like oh, I'm getting kind of immediate results. Um, but then quickly you kind of plateau off that and you see kind of like step functions. It's like a long period of time where it doesn't really feel like anything's happening. And then you tweak something and then boom, you like, you, you go up a step. Uh, so I, I kind of like that um, uh, as a, as an analogy. I think that's, I think that's a reasonable, um, I think that's a reasonable uh, analogy and your, your board expects every quarter forever to be a record. Um, right. It's not that, that that growth is not linear and consistent and predictable, right? It is, it is built up of a bunch of things not quite working and then one does and it lifts you for a while and then a bunch of things don't quite work and then one does or several do and it lifts you for a while and so yep i think i think your analogy for weightlifting is uh is is holds true to some extent awesome um so next let's talk about founders uh typically they're not like they're they're builders they're not exactly trained in finance uh you know of course there's exceptions to the rule but um for the general uh how, how should they solve for those kind of problems uh, for sort of finance problems specifically, uh, yeah, let's start with that. Um, I, and I mean, and what I mean, can I frame it? I'll frame it one more time. Yeah. Um, you know, often you'll talk to a founder. They they have an idea that they're really passionate about. They feel it on a human level. They know fundamentally, like this is the problem. This is what I'm trying to solve. But they don't know exactly the maybe financial ramifications is yeah. kind of the right word or how. You know, they have a, an idea of what the value is, but it's hard to put yourself in other people's minds and see what they're going to see as the value for your company, you know? Um, so yeah. when you're so close to this thing, how do you how do you bring people in and, and, and how do you start looking at your business as a business and not just your baby? Yeah, good question. So super tactically, there are lots of contract CFOs out and uh, get one pretty early um super super tactically i think that i think that a founder who's going to stay the ceo or remain an executive he or she has an obligation to continue to level up in all domains so you don't ever have to be as good as finance as as your eventual cfo but you do have to know what to look for with that leader you do have to have develop a sense of what's a good amount of money to spend or not you have to get better just like you have to get better at sales and you have to get better at marketing. And if you don't come from the product side, you have to get better at, pro- you, 
You have to continue to level up the entire time you're CEO or you kind of can't be CEO anymore of a growing company. And so I think, I think the same thing, I think the same thing on the finance side. That said, you can surround yourself with consultants. You can hire, you can hire leaders. You can, you can rely and trust in those people who have dedicated their careers to this stuff. But I think, I think the best founders I've worked with, they're really great at being in, at that process of leveling themselves up and they're intentional about it and they use network and they use consultants and they use trial and error and the founders have longer to sort it out than their people that they hire do. Like we have to level up. We have to already know it or level up super fast. Um, but they, they still have a ticking clock where if they can't, they can't ever get fluent in finance or in dealing with their customers or whatever. It's, it's really hard for them to stay, stay in the seat. Yeah, I'd like to point out, like, you know, we're talking about tech here and tech is always growing and improving. So, you know, the people in charge of tech will also need to do the same. Yeah, Uh, that's kind of the the beautiful part about technology, right? It's like we're making little incremental changes uh, every every day, every week, every hour. So, you know, the people in charge of it kind of got to do that, too. Yep. Uh, let's talk about competition. Um, there's a lot of good ideas out there and a lot of people, uh, trying to solve the same problems. How, how do you, and how have you been able to pull away from competition when you're, when you're kind of running a business or or running a part of a business, managing people, managing teams? Good, good question. I mean, I think (laughs) Peter Thiel would say create a monopoly and just live off that, exploit that monopoly. Uh, probably. Probably, probably. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if we want to go down that. That easier uh, said than done, right? <laughs> e- e- easier said than done has all sorts of other societal implications. I think in the early stages, try not to worry about. I try not. We try not to worry about competition too much. There's so much we need to do to execute and build a great and differentiated value proposition, and build a great company that we try to. We we try not to index too much on our competitor has X Y Z. I think later, uh, other than creating a monopoly and uh, and all that I think the only durable thing you can do is to keep keep moving fast so I used to come from the agile software development lean software development world and we would talk about cycle time the sort of duration of time it takes from having an idea to validated feedback and when your startup is three people that's very fast when your startup is a hundred or two hundred or five thousand people uh, it's going to take a huge amount of time and focus and energy to keep that time quick and uh, some infrastructure to do it. And I think that keeping that cycle time down, having a great engineering team on the product side that can do that for your team and your company, I think that's the only durable thing, durable thing that I am aware of. Got to stay hungry. Mm-hmm. Can't right. get satisfied. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're going to keep talking about growth. And my next question is about, let me, let me frame it right. The question is, how fast should you grow once you reach $1 million in annual run rate? I, I've i noticed a trend in a lot of your answers seem to be, you know, you got to find this uh, this middle yeah, yeah. ground, yeah. find the Goldilocks spot. So uh, I guess, yeah, like what's your advice on on that? How, how fast you can grow when you've reached $1 million in ARR? Yeah, again, I wish I had like a clean, like, well, it's 12.6%, which, which I wish I had that for you, but I, but I don't. So the way I approach the problem is I think about, well, where do we need to be at our, at some event in the future? And that fundraising is a good example. So not, not when we run out of cash, but when we have to go talk to investors again, where do we need to be? What, what revenue do we need to be at? How, mm-hmm. how much do we want to be spending money at, at, at that time? Actually, really just those two things. 
the ARR and, and the burn. So, all right, great. So we're at a million now. And in 18 months, we need to be at 4 million and we need to be, uh, uh, our burn needs to be good for this. Great. So that's how we constrain this problem. And that's how I know how fast um, we need to grow. And we usually, I usually think about it that way and less about this is the month to month growth I need to sort of achieve, achieve escape velocity. It's, it's, uh, thinking about it from the company milestones and then breaking that down into a bunch of other assumptions and initiatives and whatever. And that's, that's sort of my operator's perspective uh, on this. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you're essentially like visualizing yourself in 18 months or, or whatever it is when you're in that's that right. meeting, you need, you need to just sort of see like, what kind of, what am I going to be asking for? Where am I going to be at? And then what story, do, what story do I want to be telling? That's right. That's right. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So, we talked a little bit about ARR. I want to talk about a uh, another fancy acronym here that is probably close uh, to your heart, and that's NPS, Net Promoter Score. Yeah. Uh, so, what is that useful for? And do you do you pay close attention to Net Promoter Score? Yeah. So, Net Promoter Score is famous survey question. Right? You know, on a scale of one to ten, how likely are you to re- recommend this product or service? And you take your nines and tens and subtract your, your, your low ones and get the net. And so, yes, we, we use it. I have to say, I'm a little suspicious of surveys in general too early. Uh, when you have four customers, go talk to all your customers. When you have 20 employees, don't do employee NPS, go talk to all your employees. And yes, you're introducing bias. And too often, I think leaders do a survey and, and sort of tick the box. Oh, I did the survey. I care about my employees or my customers or whatever. Uh, and I, and I lump NPS in that as well. So I'm a little, it's like a little bit of a crutch for like actually caring about the thing. Mm. Uh, I've seen quite a lot. That said, <laughs> that said, yes, it's totally valuable. Um, and especially if, you know, your go-to-market is a modern software go-to-market where, uh, it's free to try where we're relying on word of mouth or, you know, we're li- relying on, on it's a, it's a freemium SaaS product or it's, it's an open source product. Uh, yes, it's extremely valuable because you're not getting other signal from these people in terms of money and, and renewals. And so their usage is a great, is a great, uh, signal and their NPS is a great, is a great signal for how you're actually doing out there. Yeah. Okay. So Jeff, you also ran day-to-day operations at Domino Data Labs, as you, as you kind of mentioned here. But as you, you were doing that as the company was scaling from $4 million to $20 million in ARR. Yeah. Kudos, by the way. Uh, but what were the similarities and differences you saw uh, versus your time at CoreOS? As, as you, you know, both times you were sort of scaling impressively. Um, what are sort of the general truths there? And then, and then what was different? Yeah, I think um, I, I think the real difference there was in terms of our uh, the sort of shape of our product and 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 then what that meant for the company. So CoreOS, like I said, it was it was open source. It was uh, developer adopted. We were building off a, a community of developers and uh, infrastructure folks, and then as their companies needed a platform with various enterprise tools and SLAs behind it, we we would try to charge them money. Domino, at least in the time I was there, had a different go-to-market. It was very, to- it was very top-down. We were again, we were selling to big insurance companies and big banks that were trying to centralize quantitative research in their organization, and that was a super long sales cycle. 
with a super high average sales price, we would take on complexity risk that we wouldn't have at CoreOS in terms of, sure, we'll install in your crazy custom data center in, in rural France. Yes, we'll go do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas at, at CoreOS, everything was about uh, the, our ability to automate, our ability to upgrade, and our ability to standardize it. And so it's, it's not that one is right or wrong, but it's really going to change the shape of your company in terms of uh, the way your plan works, in terms of what kind of team you need to support um, engineering and implementations. It's going to support how you, it's going to change how you market. And so the, the form factor of our product in each of those really, really changed um, sort of a lot about, about the company and, and, and how we needed to work. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of differences. How about similarities that you observed like as you were scaling both companies? Yeah, sure. I think dealing with enterprises is dealing with enterprises. So these are both enterprise companies. And so the way that they the way that they buy, the kind of support they expect, a, a lot of similarities there. Uh, it's going to take longer than you think if you've never done it before. Right. To, to deal with these people, uh, to deal with, to, to work with these customers and get, get value in their hands. I think also, you know, sort of similar step changes in the growth of the company, similar inflection points as we went from everyone in the same office to everyone working on the same products to everyone not, you know, knowing each other and not knowing each other. And some of the sort of internal communication changes and management changes we need to make at those inflection points, those, those felt really, really similar um, across the two. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your experience about those two companies. I think we got like another minute here. Maybe we can talk really quickly about like what you're doing currently with startups and uh, how many of those startups you're, you're working with. Sure. So thank you. So I've been independent for, for a bit over a year. I think I've worked with nine different startups. A couple of them have done um, relatively long-term interim roles in, in finance or in sales operations, or in fact, in sales. Uh, and then I've also done sort of advisory or project uh, or, uh, or 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 project work. Um, hey, you know, how can we work with enterprise customers, or what should our strategy for customer success be? And so it's been great. Someone who's who's uh, was a, a systems integrator until until I joined Silicon Valley five or six years ago. It's been a great way to get a have some impact and get a bunch of at bats and really accelerate my learning. So it's it's been it's been fun and uh, and I feel like I'm contributing to these companies. Awesome. All right. Well, you sound like an awesome person, Jeff. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you to get some more of your expertise, uh, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, you can find me on on Twitter, Jeff Gray, G-R-A-Y-S-F. So Jeff, Jeff Gray SF on Twitter. All right. Thank you. Uh, okay, guys, we're going to end it there. Thanks to Jeff for sharing your experience and insights. Uh, Thanks, I think Alex. this one, yeah, of course. I think this one will be highly valuable for people that are uh, going to be scaling businesses soon. So again, thanks, Jeff. Uh, it was great having you. Uh, take care. All right, bye.